Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. As religious faith has declined, ideological intensity has risen. Will the quest for secular redemption through politics doom the American idea? In this episode, Eric Cohn, Acton's Director of Communications, and Shadi Hamid, Senior Fellow at the Center of Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution, discuss Hamid's new article published in The Atlantic, America Without God. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Shadi Hamid is a senior fellow in the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution and the author of the 2017 book, Islamic Exceptionalism, How the Struggle Over Islam is Reshaping the World. He's co-host of the Wisdom of Crowds podcast and a contributing writer at The Atlantic, where in March 2021, he published the essay, America Without God, which we'll be discussing today. Shadi Hamid, welcome to Act in Line. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. So... The title of your essay in The Atlantic is, is pretty bracing, America Without God. Uh, lay out the landscape as you see it um, and as you do in the article, which we'll include a link to in the show notes. But um, just lay out the landscape of faith in America in 2021. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the U.S. used to be unique among Western democracies, and we used to think that about ourselves, that where much of Europe, certainly Western Europe, had become extremely secularized. We were, we were the exception to that. And I think there was a certain level of pride, maybe not, with, not among everyone, but, um, but at least a sense that the U.S. was different. And obviously difference can be either good or bad, but it was certainly something that was somewhat unusual. Um, compared to some of these other countries. Um, that is just simply no longer the case. I mean, um, the, the Gallup survey that came out that got a lot of hype a couple months back, and rightfully so, um, it tells us some interesting things. Uh, you know, for about 60 years, church membership was constant at around 70%. And then over the last two decades, we've seen a pretty precipitous drop to less than 50%. And, you know, some people might say, well, church membership isn't the best proxy for religiosity. Obviously, people can be religious and care about religion without going to church. But in that same Gallup survey, there's another number which got less attention, which is that the number of Americans who say religion is very important or extremely important in their lives has dropped to its lowest number in nearly 70 years. So right now that number is at 48% and it was once as high as 75%. So these are pretty big drops on a number of different metrics. And, you know, from my standpoint, one of the arguments I make in the, the Atlantic article is that we're in a be careful what you wish for situation that um, the kind of people that I tend to know um, in major urban centers, I live in DC, 
they tend to be pretty secular. And for them, the idea that less Americans would go to church or less Americans would be consumed by religious passion would be a positive thing because that for them would mean that America is becoming more rational, more sensible. But I think that we can assess our situation now. And I I don't think most Americans would look at our current moment and say that it is, um, it is a particularly rational or sensible moment. Ideological polarization has risen ideological fragmentation has risen. We feel like a more divided country. And we also feel like a more irrational country where um, people are, um, are are sort of relying on tribal affiliations or partisan affiliations. And facts now are being contested, not just on the right, which I think has been going on for quite some time, But also, I think there's a question about empirical reality on the left, where um, if something is politically inconvenient or doesn't support our our own ideologies, we want to push that away and not look at it. So all of this suggests that we have to reconsider, um, you know, aspects of what was once called, and I guess still is called, um, the secularization thesis or the modernization thesis, this idea that there's a linear trajectory of progress that advanced countries go through. And one of those trajectories is having less religion and people become more focused on this world. But is it good to be more focused or primarily focused on this world if it in fact is leading to this ideological polarization and fragmentation? So um, that's that's a big part of the, of the article, um, and then the, just the other thing I'll mention briefly is, um, I you know I'm Muslim, so I, I don't believe in Christianity, but I think Christianity can be good. I think Christianity, and this is where I find myself in this odd position of lamenting the decline of Christianity in America because. Um, I believe that people need to believe in something. I believe that we as human beings, we search for meaning and, and we need to find it in whatever way that we can. And if Christianity is declining, that means there's an ideological vacuum that's being left. And if it's not Christianity that's addressing those concerns about meaning and belonging and community, then other things will have to take its place. And when I look at the other things that are taking its place, I don't think that those things are better. Some of that is this um, uh, ethno-nationalism that is associated with Donald Trump, Trumpism, whatever you want to call it. And there's also a Trumpian version of Christianity, which I think is less Christian and more Trumpian. Um, We might call that perhaps Christian nationalism. It's very partisan and it's, it's very much tied to the person of Trump, almost as if he's some kind of modern day savior. And on the left side of the spectrum, we see the rise of what might be called, um, what, what used to be called like social, social justice warrior ideology. Now we use the word woke, wokeism, wokeness, and that, and 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 I'm I'm on the left. So um, even though some people don't think I'm on the left, but um, I'm on the left. So I'm concerned about my own side, and I think that what we have with wokeness is that it mimics religion but in the service of, in my view, a false God. So in any case, these are the things that are replacing Christianity as Christianity has declined. You mentioned the focus on 
the world that we inhabit currently as we see the decline in both institutional religion and faith in general, which to me suggests a what would come along with that is a loss of a sense of eschatology and a theory of, of the end times and what comes beyond this world. Do you think that to the point you were making about uh, polarization and partisanship and all these things getting worse are coming from um, a combination of a lack of focus on what comes after this life, a hyper focus on the world as it is, and the passions that were previously being channeled into religion, and I'll say religion properly understood, which we mean the idea of faith. You've talked about Christianity and Islam and Judaism, faith in that sense, and having it channeled into politics as a religion or wokeness as a religion, that it's, it's, that's the reason we're pulling apart because we're taking energies and passions that should be reserved for other things and putting it into places where we're just not going to get the same thing out of it. Exactly. And, you know, as someone who believes in God, so if you believe in God, as I do, then, then it's natural to assume that God would have created us to believe in things that are beyond this world. He probably would have instilled that into us. And that would have been part of the human condition and part of our innate disposition. So if that is in fact part of our innate disposition to search for higher powers and transcendent meaning, then however secular we become or think we are, it can't extinguish that basic need and desire. Now, if someone doesn't believe in God, I suppose they could take issue with my premise. So some of this depends on, on what our starting assumptions are. But even if you don't believe in God, I think that you can look empirically at people in different countries, certainly in our country. But I think it's also partly a universal question increasingly. We, we see the rise of um, ideological passions in any number of different countries, whether it's right-wing Hindu nationalism in India, um, populism with Bolsonaro in Brazil, we see a kind of um, secular populism in Italy, so on and so forth. We're seeing this in a lot of different places. So what that suggests to me is that um, as we become more secular, we are focusing if we don't have a next world, if we don't have a next life, if we don't have a tra transcendent account, then we're going to be more hyper-focused on what's happening in this life. And part of what happens in this life that arouses passions is politics. So we end up diverting more and more of our attention to what might otherwise be considered mundane. They could still be important, but they're not, I mean, but they're still they're still somewhat narrow. Um, and that's why political, that's part of why political passions are becoming more of a problem, that the stakes are rising. Because if this is all we have, uh, and that makes us want to have a utopia or some kind of salvation in this life, because we can't count on anything else after this life. So it's understandable if you are, um, a secular person and you're not sure if there's going to be an afterlife, it makes sense to emphasize justice in this world. That can actually be a good thing um, that people want better outcomes for people on important metrics in our own politics. So that can be good. 
But the problem is when it starts to become this all-consuming passion that, again, sort of mimics the certainty and conviction of religion. And um, that creates problems, especially in a country like the U.S., where ultimately what binds us together as Americans is being American, because we are not a traditional nation state. We are one of the world's only ideological states. In other words, we have a founding creed. And I, I use that word intentionally. And um, and it's any number of people have referred to the American idea as a creed. And cr the word creed has a religious connotation. And, um, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, in his famous I Have a Dream speech um, specifically talked about the American idea in this kind of religious sense. And I think that's a, an interesting and useful way of understanding America. But we have to find ways to temper the intensity. And if we um, and if we don't have enough religion or if we don't have enough Christianity, then I fear that we're losing one of our traditional tools to temper the passions of this world. The other thing is that Christianity offers us, I think, an important way of looking at judgment. And this is where the more time I've spent with my... Um, my Christian and and evangelical and evangelical friends, Catholic friends, who helped me understand this a little bit more. And sometimes it's talked about as the Christian pluralist idea that draws on the work of the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper, who I mentioned in the Atlantic essay. This idea that um, if we are all broken by sin, if we are fallen, and that if perfection is only possible with with the return of Christ and is not possible in this imperfect world, it requires us to have a certain level of humility that we can't, we can try to, to search for, to, to find truth and, and to find what religion wants us to find. But because we are fallen and because we are sinners, there is always going to be a gap there between what we are and what we aspire to. And this humility allows us to basically suspend or postpone judgment that um, there are no final victories in this world. The only final victories are with God in the next world, in eternity, if you will. And there's something I think very liberating about that. If you start to see things in that light, it allows you to kind of take a step back and chill a little bit because this isn't everything. And even sometimes, you know, um, I feel this when I go on Twitter and I'm engaging with people and I get really worked up. Um, and it, you don't you don't even have to be a particularly religious person to learn this method, which is basically to find a way when you feel outraged to remember that this isn't everything. And if you're if you're a more secular person, you could maybe look at this and say, "Oh, you know, what about family, friends, leisure, travel?" I mean, obviously those things aren't um, well. Family, I suppose, is transcendent, but um, there are ways, um, even without God, I think, to consciously look for meaning outside of politics. And I think that's important. You mentioned the American creed, America as an ideological uh, nation, which makes us different from most of the rest of the world, where you had um, tribes who come together and form in, in one place. And there's a long history of all of that. And, and, and for all of the reasons I don't need to state, America is, is just different in the way that it was founded. Um, 
Do you think or is there a connection that you see in that there's a decline in religious faith? And there's also seems to be a decline in the faith in the American creed. I think you can see this on on both sides of the political divide. I mean, so much of the rhetoric of the last five or six years um, on the right was not about how you got your typical uh, patriotic or jingoistic um, right wing language about, you know, how America is great and wonderful. It was more about how America is a terrible place that needs to be made great again. And you can look at things on the left, like the 1619 Project, which seeks to say that there's something um, almost irredeemable about the American experiment because of its founding in this original sin. Um, So I'm curious if you see any connections there or just your thoughts on that in general. Yeah. So look, if, if we no longer have religion or as much religion then we have to look at other things that we can fall back on. Because we're not a normal nation state, we can't fall back on the traditional shared ethnicity or a history of, you know, centuries upon centuries. You know, if you're you're Swedish, you can fall back on being Swedish because that's not an idea. It's just a people. Sweden is the land for Swedes. Germany is the land for Germans. So there's some basic thing there where you're not necessarily contesting the founding um, because most Western, most Western European countries don't have a clear sense of a founding moment or a set of founding fathers. Now, like in certain countries, you have important figures like Charles de Gaulle in France who initiated a new republic. But, you know, it isn't it isn't the way you have um, almost like prophetic figures like our founding fathers who almost assume a religious significance. That's actually relatively rare in, in much of the world. So that makes us as Americans a little bit more dependent on our founding moment. And that's why I get nervous when people want to contest the founding or dismiss it entirely or even to go one step further and say that it's bad then we're in a more precarious situation because that's really something that we rely on. And if we don't have that, then what do we have? And then it might, in fact, push people to consider other other means of belonging that are more European, basically ethno-nationalism, the sense that America is a land for people of a particular ethnicity or historical lineage or whatever else it might be. That's not good, I don't think. And I'm I'm just pulling up a number here because there was another Gallup poll um, last year on American pride, and it's also in free fall. And is it an is it a coincidence that American church affiliation is in free fall, and also American pride is in free fall? I would suggest to you that that's not a coincidence. Basically, the number. This is really incredible, and I actually couldn't even believe these numbers when I first saw them. There's a number of them, but basically one is that in 2004, 91% of Americans were either extremely or very proud to be American. In 2020, that figure dropped almost 30% to 63%. If you look at it um, in partisan terms, I forget what the numbers are, but they're they're very striking where I think it was around um, more than 60% of Democrats just um, 20 years ago um, said that they were extremely or very, uh, very proud to be American. 
now the number is somewhere in the 20 percent um uh, 20 percent um uh range so i mean these are these are things that are like pretty striking when you when you look at them when you look at them more closely so um the question is what do we do about that then but i think the first step is we we have to acknowledge that this is not this is a problem and i think on on the left side of the spectrum i think there's still this sense that this is not a crisis that it's okay if people lose faith in america because there are reasons to be disappointed in our country um and um that's a big part of what many on the left are saying now this sense of shame and this sense of not being proud and as you mentioned the very the very premise of trump's uh, 2016 campaign is that america wasn't great and that we had to be made great again so i think on both sides there we're seeing this kind of depending on who's in office i should say and that's also kind of frightening because should you really let who's in office change your perception of who you are and your relationship to your own country and your love of your own country i would like to think that it shouldn't matter who happens to be in power for four years, that your, your, your perception should be constant because it's not dependent on political leadership, which goes back to my previous point that when we elevate politics in this way, politics shifts how we view our own country. I mean, isn't it, I was going to say, isn't it just a natural consequence then of the raising of stakes that has come from, you know, it, it, I, I tie it back to um, problems of uh, declining faith and a declining sense of, you know, that there is a world beyond this one. And when, when you lose that sense of a world beyond this one where perfection exists, well, what is to stop you? I mean, in, in you don't want to make the you know, the terrible analogies, especially to the early part of the 20th century. But you know the 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 mentality that you look at in some of the more tyrannical regimes that said like, well, you know, we, there's no reason not to try to make perfection here on Earth, and you can't you make an omelet without breaking some eggs, and it excuses some very very terrible things that um, individual people leading regimes did. And I don't mean to suggest, and I don't want anyone to take that I'm suggesting that I think in America we're anywhere close to all of that, but. But you see the similar patterns of thinking that politics and who is in office for four years becomes so much more important and it affects the way that you feel about the country. Because if that's really all that there is to fight for, there's nothing much beyond this, well, it's zero sum now. And why wouldn't you put everything into this this one category? Yeah. And it also suggests, it also suggests a kind of disrespect for democratic outcomes because if if our view of america changes if someone like donald trump is elected then it means that in some indirect way or perhaps even direct way we're looking at our fellow americans the um i guess in 2016 it was somewhere in 60 whatever this 60 million plus people who voted for donald trump we look at them as people who are undermining our country. They are threats and we're angry at them for basically making us lose faith in our own country. In 2020, about 74 million Americans voted for Donald Trump, which is a significant increase from 2016, obviously not enough for Trump to win, but we're so, we're still sort of, and this was a lot, I think um, maybe it's, 
it's still a part of the discourse now where you'll hear Democrats talk about the 70 more, the 74 million Americans who were a, a problem basically. And I don't know how we can survive as a country if we see, if we as Democrats see 74 million people as not just people who um, chose wrongly. I think it's fine to say that, hey, we disagree with those other voters. We think they made the wrong decision. But when we take it one step further and say, and we assume some kind of moral error and moral culpability that it's not just a political decision, but it's actually evidence of a moral failure on their part, that they are bad, they are deplorable. In fact, they may even all be racist. And this is actually, I'm not exaggerating. I mean, there, there were a number of um, article, mainstream articles. There's one I have in mind in particular in, 20, in 2017, where it was like, every single Trump voter is in effect a racist. Maybe they're not like racist in the traditional definition, but anyone who votes for a racist is in effect giving sucker to, to, to racism, so on and so forth. And that sort of, that path to maybe dehumanization isn't the right word, because I wouldn't want to compare what we have in the US where in other countries where there is dehumanization that leads to mass killing. Thank God we haven't had full-on outbreaks of, of political violence. But when we think historically about how countries fall apart and how we see civil conflict increasing, the first step is oftentimes seeing your fellow citizens as no longer equal or no longer de deserving of, of the right, of equal rights, basically. So I think that it, it's not, you know, obviously this is, we, we don't know what America will become, but I think now is the time to start really interrogating these pretty frightening developments. Um, and this goes back to, to, I think the partisan, you know, a partisan divide. So I just sort of, um, tried to remember by memory and I was pretty close with the partisan gap between Republicans and Democrats, but the exact number is this in 2020, 67% of Republicans said that they were extremely proud to be American only 24% of Democrats say they are extremely proud to be American. So that's a gap of, if my math is good here, 43%. This is, and I, this is remarkable that you would have this kind of partisan gap. Um, and you might say, well, okay, extremely proud is pretty strong. What if they're just very proud or somewhat proud? But still, Republicans are still willing to say in as of 2020 that they are extremely proud to be American. I'm concerned, again, as someone who uh, votes for Democrats, um, I want my party to kind of rediscover its pride for being American. It will be interesting to see that if, you know, Biden will be the Biden administration after four years, it'll be interesting to see if Republicans are as sensitive to a Democrat being in office for four years. And maybe in three or four years, we'll see Republicans dropping from 67% to say 45% or something like that. But that's something we're gonna to have to watch very closely, I think. Well, I, you're, you're of course right that we haven't seen mass outbreaks of political violence, but we have seen 
some mild outbreaks of political violence, which I think we could view as a very troubling sign for what the future may hold. And, and as you were saying that, I was, I'm reminded of um, Arthur Brooks, the former president at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, of a talk I saw him give on political motive asymmetry, that when we think about people on the other side of the political divide, we think we support the things that we do politically because we want to help people and we want to make the country or our communities and the country and the world a better place. But those people on the other side, they have evil or nefarious motivations. They want bad things. And except in the very rarest of circumstances, it's just generally not true. In in most cases, people do believe the things they do politically because they want to help people and they want to make things better. And I could connect this back to, I think, the decline in in religion, particularly in in Christianity, where there's a teaching to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, As you have a decline in people who are hearing and being inculcated in that message, you are also seeing a decline in this kind of bitter tribalism that views politics as more meaningful in that there's badness on the other side and they want to do bad things and they're not a neighbor to be loved as you love yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's right. That Christianity does offer us some resources, um, to help us see our neighbor in this more positive light, even if we very strongly disagree with our neighbor. Although a concern I have, and I, I don't always have a great answer for this. It's also not really, you know, my place to kind of give a definitive answer. I think it's for Christians to kind of contend with this, which is, there are, um, you know, the fact that eighty, the eighty percent plus, uh, you know, evangelicals who uh, voted for Donald Trump or supported Donald Trump, you know, over the past five years or so, um, that Trumpism, you know, isn't necessarily in the spirit of loving your neighbor. Now, when I think about Trump, I don't think he was evil. I think that he was just merely a bad president who did things that I thought were bad and maybe in some ways destructive for the country. But again, I my thing is I need to respect democratic outcomes, even if I personally find them threatening. That's the only way democracy can work is if you just say, hey, democracy is good, irrespective of the outcomes that it produces. But I, I do I do worry that even among those who um you know who who bear Christian witness and and take that seriously, are they are they necessarily reflecting these values of loving their neighbor? Um, because, you know, there are some debates about asymmetric polarization that in some ways Democrats and liberals re- hate Republicans more than the other way around, but still it's pretty high on the Republican side as well. So I think it's become a problem that even Christians have to contend with. Um and, you know, when I talk about the ideas, the um, the Christian pluralist or Kuyperian ideals of suspending or postponing judgment, I think that if a lot of people look at how, how Christians um, organize and act in American politics today, do we see enough of that suspension of judgment where we give our fellow citizens the benefit of the doubt? Unfortunately, um, the uh, either the group or one of the groups that is most anti-Muslim in America, uh, at least as of one or two years ago, were unfortunately self-described Christian evangelicals. And you know, as a Muslim, 
that you know that's very concerning to me that there isn't this sort of um, willingness to extend good faith to even you know members of other faiths and so on and so forth. So anyway, this is just to say that I think it's something that once one side sees the other side doing it, they respond in kind and it becomes this vicious cycle. Now people can debate who started it. I don't think that's particularly important. I think both sides think it was the other side who started being bad first. And they're saying, hey, the other side was bad. They were making politics existential. We're gonna have to fight back. Um, someone's gotta stop first, you know? And I think that we all have a responsibility on our own side. So, okay, as someone who is um, on the left side of the spectrum, who is a Democrat, I pay more attention to my own side's failures because that's where I'm gonna potentially have at least some influence. I'm not gonna go to conservatives or Christian evangelicals and tell them to change because that's not my that's not my tribe, if you will. So I think that if all of us sort of focused on what are our own sort of concentric circles of community where we have some kind of influence, where people are willing to listen to us, that's where we have to start to shift some of the ways we talk about our political opponents. And maybe one way, one way that I try to talk about this is to say that, um, look, there are people who are beyond the pale in American politics. But for me, that number of beyond the pale people should be maybe 2% of the entire population. So outright white supremacists, people who advocate violence explicitly, although I guess that's probably a larger number now. But okay, let's stick with outright white supremacists and like avowed racists, like people who are just straight up maybe 2% of the population. I would say that the other 98%, we can find a way to live together. We don't have to like each other. We can even have some strong dislike towards each other, but they should never be, they should never be um, dismissed as non-American or anti-American or people who are betraying the American idea. Maybe we think that, but I think we have to be careful about that kind of language, because when, if America is a creed, if we're accusing our, our fellow citizens of being traitors to the American cause or to the American idea, it almost starts to have a religious valence to it. Um, so I would like to think that the 98% of Americans who are not outright racists or white supremacists, those are people who are within the fold, just like there are a lot of Muslims who um, I think believe in pretty bad things, but for the most part, unless you're like a, an actual um, like terrorist, so as, as long as you're not like with ISIS or the very small percentage to emphasize this, um, the very minute percentage of the 1.6 billion Muslims in the world who, who are part of these very extreme small, small movements, you know, I might not like your view as a Muslim, but I'm not gonna excommunicate you. I'm not gonna say that you are outside the fold of Islam. And that's one reason that in Islamic history, it was very much frowned upon to basically um, what would be called in Christianity excommunication. We don't usually use that word, but this idea of um, saying that a Muslim is no longer Muslim, basically the word for that is takfir. So generally you're not supposed to do that. There's a reason for that. Because once you start putting people outside the fold of a community, 
we get into very dangerous territory. Before we conclude, some of what you addressed in there brought me back to a question I was thinking about at the beginning of our conversation as you gave the initial numbers that you highlighted in your Atlantic piece where we see a decline in church affiliation, but we also see a decline in religiosity in general. I'm curious if you have any insights on you know, the chicken or the egg part of that question, right? Did, did one come before the other? Because as I look around um, American society, I was talking about this with a colleague of mine at uh, Acton this week, that there is this crisis of legitimacy that we've seen so many institutions, not just religious institutions, governmental institutions, civic institutions, uh, that have been revealed to have been uh, corrupted in some way. I think this has been expedited by the technological revolution that makes information fly as fast as it does, that makes things that are, you know, I, 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 this is, I gave this example to him, the dust-up uh, a couple of years ago between Saurabh Amari and David French, where the thing that was so animating to Saurabh Amari was the drag queen story hour in Sacramento, California. And he lives in New York City, about as far away as he could possibly get from it even really being in his backyard. But because of social media, because of technology, we perceive all these things to be right in our backyard. Um, I think it's also revealed a lot of these institutional corruptions. Um, certainly, I'm a Catholic. There were corruptions within the Catholic Church that have been revealed in the last few decades that were greater and worse than we thought they were or knew they were at the time. So I, I'm curious if you have any insights on if the decline in institutional religion helped precipitate the decline in religiosity or a decline in religiosity helped precipitate the decline in institutional religion? You know, I think it's hard to, to disentangle that. Um, I, I would say that um, they probably both play a role and are you have a kind of complex interaction effect where it keeps on going back and forth and there's a feedback loop. But I think that there's a couple of things. I mean, one is that it's harder to be religious if you're not part of a structure or a community or you're around other people who help you maintain your religiosity. So some people will dismiss church membership as, as more or less irrelevant. Um, I disagree simply because um, institutions matter. And if we're also talking about Christianity's positive impacts on the country and on society. If you're an individual Christian doing your own thing, no matter how strongly you believe in your own home, the positive impacts of your Christianity are not going to be realized unless you're able to pool your belief or your resources with other people who share your commitment and you do things together in the world. You you, um, you start NGOs, you give to charity, you volunteer. Um, those are things that generally institutions help you to do. Um, it's hard to volunteer if you're just by yourself because you're, you usually need other people to volunteer with. Um, I also think that Christianity, um, at, at least relatively speaking, is more dependent on institutions than Islam is. So um, an, interesting, uh, an interesting divergence is if you asked um, anecdotally, uh, we don't know the exact numbers on this, but anecdotally, um, if you ask a Muslim, what, mem what mosque are you a member of? That's generally not a very clear question and sometimes might even be perceived as an odd question. Um, first of all, um, you can 
you can go to really any mosque in your in your neighborhood or whatever. The idea of going to the same mosque every week isn't really isn't really as common. Um, and also mosques aren't as important because of certain aspects of Islam that make it easier to just do wherever you happen to be, even if you don't have a mosque um, close to you. Um, you. You can do things with Muslims without going to the mosque, so on and so forth. Anyway, I think different religions emphasize these things in different ways. Um, I would sort of posit that um, without churches and also, um, you know, for many Christians, going to church once a week and feeling and, and being reminded of that on a weekly basis is very critical. Where in the Friday prayer in Islam, which is the weekly obligatory prayer, you can technically do that if you're just if you just have five other people, um, or even one one or two other people in your own home, and you can sort of just um, you can do that if you don't have access to a mosque in your local area or whatever it might be. But anyway, I, I so I do think that thinking about institutions and how they're important and how they structure our religious commitments is important. But I, I think also the national awareness, as you mentioned, is relevant here, that you hear all these stories about corrupt church institutions, um, and that can't help but affect how you view organized religion, um, if that is what you see. And especially if what you see as, say, an evangelical who's more who's not as conservative politically, and you're looking at the most prominent evangelical figures in the country and the most prominent evangelical megachurches, and you're thinking to yourself, who are these people and why do they why do they support Trump and why are they moving in this direction of Christian nationalism? So the nationalization of our understanding of religion is a problem because generally, like maybe like, several decades ago, we'd be more aware of our local church and our local Christian community. But now we're bombarded by all of this information, not just in our own countries, but also maybe we look to the Catholic church in, in Ireland and we, we, we learn, we hear about those abuses as well. And that affects you because it can be a major news story, even if you're not in Ireland, so on and so forth. So I think that um, there's an institutional responsibility here. And it just happens to be the case that organized religion isn't doing a great job of seeming compassionate or seeming virtuous. And ultimately, if you want people to join your institution, you have to be compelling enough for them to join it. What I also think is interesting is institutions, in my understanding of them, should ask something from you. Um, they should ask for you to invest in them in the evangelical world. And I, I'm, I'm a Catholic, but I had attended evangelical churches for, uh, for a while. Uh, th there is a, it's known in the evangelical world as seeker sensitive, um, that you are, you don't want to ask too much of people cause you're trying, you want it to be as, as big tent as you, as you possibly can be. And the more that you ask of people, the more that you'll get the ones who fall off. They're like, well, I, I don't really want to give something, but, but asking something of people, um, gets them invested in the institution, and it also helps serve those ends that you were talking about, or, or at least some of the mechanisms and things that the institution does. That you know, providing uh, charity and helping out in communities, it asks you to to do something. And I see, I think as I observe it, kind of a decline in institutions asking 
us to give something of ourselves to them. And this is a Yuval Levin point from his work on institutions that they exist a lot now for people to stand on top of them and perform rather than to be shaped by the institution themselves. So I think as they lose that function, you know, they become, it becomes less relevant to people. If the institution isn't going to ask you to, to give of yourself and be formed by it, well, what's the purpose of being associated with it? And exactly. And that's why you don't want churches to go too soft. I mean, this is part of the story of decline of mainline Protestant denominations is that, I mean, how, how do I put this? I guess they became like a little bit fluffy and a little bit um, maybe even non-Orthodox in ways that it felt like, well, what are we actually doing here? What are these churches actually asking from us if it's become so... Um, it's become harder to define what they actually stand for. In theory, you might think that this might make them more appealing to, you know, the big tent and people who aren't as invested. But what we found out is that you do need some degree of structure and even orthodoxy to um, inspire people to be part of something. Um, because we, if, if, if the premise is that we want meaning and that human beings crave at least some degree of structure, that we're, we become overwhelmed by unlimited choice. That, you know, there's a lot in, be, in behavioral economics about the so-called paradox of choice. We need structures that actually constrain us and tell us that some things are right and some things are wrong. Shadi Hamid is a senior fellow in the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. And he's the author of the March 2021 essay in the Atlantic, America Without God. Shadi Hamid, thank you so much for joining us today on Act in Line. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at actonline at actin.org. Until next week, for Actonline, I'm Gabriel Zhajma.